Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mm-hmm. Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce. I just changed a tire, and that is what makes me a man. I mean, if you were walking by and you saw me changing this tire, you would have said, now that, that is a man. Well, today's guest on this podcast is a woman, a female who transitioned and then detransitioned. She is a Scottish lass. And so we get to talk about the Scottish aspect of what's going on over there with certain acts that they are putting through, lowering the age where one can achieve a gender switching certificate and then fast track themselves towards getting hormones and other medical procedures to uh, identify or live as the other sex. Uh, This conversation also talks a lot about mental health and how... uh, a fixation with gender dysphoria might be a stand on, uh, might be a stand-in for other issues that one is going through, and how gender dysphoria can be seen as a fix-all that doesn't actually fix everything, and how important it is to proceed along self-investigative you know pathways when making big decisions with one's life. So, again, this is a resource for people who are curious about this topic. Um, It's also a resource for people who are curious about interesting people, uh, nice people, uh, people that you don't necessarily hear from because their voices aren't the loudest. Um, I mean, all this articulation, uh, it it takes a lot of concentration. And when you're screaming, it's hard to articulate things um, because your energies are invested elsewhere. Other than that, I hope you are having a good time with whatever you are doing while this is playing into your envelope of attention. Here's Watson. So what have you been up to? Uh, nothing. I've been going through this, uh, these hours and hours of, of footage in a Washington legislature um, equity task force. And uh, it's kind of fascinating stuff. I mean, it's really, really slow and sausage makey. But there's some pretty um, pretty radical claims being made by the people who are trying to uh, redistribute resources via bureaucracy. And uh, so I've been trying to distill that down into something that I can talk about online. That sounds fun. <laughs> it's slow work. Did you uh, spend much time in college? or I was education? at Glasgow University for four years. Um, the first two years it was studying history and archaeology. And then when I went into my honours years, I dropped the archaeology and focused on history. It's a wonderful university. <laughs> hmm. Which uh, which aspect of history? There's a lot of it. True. Um, well, the first two years you kind of cover general areas, but the area that I wanted to focus on in my third year was sedition and propaganda in the 19, uh, 1790s. So you know, when the pamphlet wars were going on during the French Revolution, how it came over to Britain and stuff like that. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, that, that, um, 
that era, I really do think that there's a lot in common between what's going on right now with social media and that era. There's like just a lot of, well, without the, I guess there was a lot more killing back then, but. Yeah, there's a lot more heads coming off back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But now it's just cancellation. So we've progressed a little bit. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> do you do you see any parallels between uh, the the way that information was being bantered about with pamphlets and how it's being, uh, how we're adjusting to social media now? Kind of. I mean, if you look at a lot of the information that was being passed about, uh, people would lie about the authors and demonize them and smear them, try and get their works banned or burned and things like that. But I don't think it's something only experienced today or during the 1790s. It's pretty, you know, propaganda, sedition, censorships, universal, isn't it? Was that mostly a religious uh, uh, or was it mostly political arguments? It, it was mostly political. Do you know a lot about Robespierre and all that? Not a lot, but I, I know my bases. Yeah, they, they were very much anti-religion. Um, but I think in the end, Robespierre went a bit mental and thought himself a bit of a god. So <laughs> technically, you could say it got religious. Huh. Yeah, they That's were true, going about yeah. sacking churches and things like that. Good times. <laughs> yeah. And how did that uh, shape uh, English politics? Well, there was a, a lot of fear-mongering that, you know, they were re originally they supported the French Revolution until all the murders started. So when the church heard about, you know, churches in France getting sacked, they started saying, oh, God, it's going to happen here. So look what's happened. They're murdering people. They're killing innocent people. The streets are running red with blood. And if it comes over here, that's going to happen here as well. So if we bring over their enlightened revolutionary thoughts, people are going to start dying. So, yeah, people were pretty, pretty scared. Do you think that uh, there was something uh, other than a political pressure that kept uh, the British populace from going full guillotine? Is there something Probably. in the culture that, or less disparity than what had been going on in France? I think because, I mean, the, the reason why the peasants in France were so pissed off was that they were being heavily taxed. And obviously the, the nobles in the royalty were living a life of blatant luxury while all the peasants were starving. And I don't think it was anywhere near that bad over here in Britain. So there was less cause for the peasants to get pissed off and revolt and storm the castle. <laughs> yeah. God, it's been still, so long uh, since I've spoken about that. <laughs> oh, yeah, I bet. Well, once you get out of university, what is what is that? What <laughs> did you end up doing with that? Did you, uh, do you still write and research? Um, not as much as I probably should. <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah, uh, I've kind of spent the past year avoiding doing anything that exercises my brain. I've just kind of been... Uh, mincing away about my flat a little bit. I've not had a very productive year, to be honest. <laughs> uh, probably taking a, per uh, a sabbatical, perhaps. Yeah, <laughs> Let's, yeah we'll call it that. <laughs> <laughs> we all do that. Um, so uh, we're here to talk about what you want to talk about, and your, your Twitter presence is about uh, your detransition and your transition. And if you want to speak about that, I'm, I'm all ears, um, mm -hmm. but on your terms, of course. Oh yeah, like I know that you've spoken to quite a few other detransitioners, haven't you? 
Um, I haven't watched all those videos yet. I watched your video with um, Dr. Malone, Dr. Zucker and Dr. Blanchard and things like that. So mm. working my way through all the doctors you've seen first. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I speak to a lot of other detransitioners on Twitter. My purpose on like coming on Twitter was never to actually have a presence. Um, it was just to reach out to speak to other detransitioners because I, I, there's not a lot of literature on detransition, so I didn't know what was going to happen. Um, so I joined Twitter and I just followed everyone that had detrans in their blog. I was like, can you tell me what's going to happen to me? <laughs> and they were like, sure. Mm. And then shortly after I joined, there was the, the BBC Newsnight segment. Um, yeah, that was the one that spoke about Debbie, who detransitioned and had Charlie Evans um, talking about it as well. And when I mentioned that I was a detransitioner, um, a lot of other people reached out to me, not just detransitioners, there was a lot of parents of trans children reaching out to me wanting to talk about it. And from there, I just started tweeting. And now I have like 2000 people listening to <laughs> listening yeah. to me just spout. So it's interesting how that happened, but it wasn't intentional. Were you uh, involved in kind of a tr like trans uh, culture or society? So the question is, did you have to detransition from your social group as well? Or were you kind of on your own journey? No, I never got tangled up in the trans community or anything like that. Um, I mean, back in 2012, I did go online and I was a lurker on Tumblr blogs and I'd watch YouTube videos and I would read forums and stuff like that. But I think because I was a bit older, I was about 21 when I started venturing down that path. So when I saw, I really don't want to piss anyone off, but when I saw what I can only really describe as very cult-like aspects to it, I kind of backed off. I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm not going to get involved in any of that. And when I did transition and shared my thoughts about stuff, they were like, oh, you're a bad trans person. You're a true scum. So I didn't have to leave the community. I was never really welcome there in the first place. Mm. Could you define true <clears throat> scum? I think that it's basically a trans person who acknowledges the biological reality that they can't change sex. So even when I was living as a trans man, I would say I'm a biological female, but I'm living socially and legally as a man. And they would say, oh, no, you've become a man. You've become a male. I would say, no, I haven't. Like, oh, well, you're true scum then. So <laughs> if you're, you're honest, you're true scum. So how, how do you think that... Why... why do you think that it would be important for a group of people to deny that biological fact? I, I honestly don't know why they insist on doing it. Um, they seem to take it as an insult. Um, I mean, I don't understand it. This denial of biological reality is quite new because I remember, you know, when transsexuals used to speak about their transition, they would say, you know, I am a biological male or female but I wish I wasn't, and that's why I've transitioned. But these days, you, you can't say that. You need to say, well, not only can you change biological sex, but in fact, they were just, they've always been that sex. They're just starting to live honestly as it. And I, I don't understand it. I don't know what they hope to achieve with it. So well, it'll be interesting to see where that goes. Do you mind speaking about, um, like, was it gender dysphoria? 
or what you would consider gender dysphoria that, that prompted you to uh, proceed through transition? Yeah, I mean, well, I didn't know what gender dysphoria was when I was a teenager. It wasn't within my, my vocabulary. Um, so I would, I, I was probably just a very, very insecure teenager. I had issues with how my body looked. I had issues with being a woman. I was very self-conscious about a lot of things and really uncomfortable with who I was. And when I started going online, I think I actually did go onto Google one day and I typed in something along the lines of, I'm a woman, but I wish I was a man. <laughs> like that obvious about it. And it was through that that I eventually found out that there's this thing called gender dysphoria. And I read the description. I was like, holy shit, that's what I have. So... I should transition and it will make me better. But I think the problem that I had and that a lot of young gender dysphoric people have is they treat all of their problems as if it can be grouped under the headline of gender dysphoria. So say you have um, you have a problem with your weight. So a lot of the detransitioners now are talking about eating disorders. So say you have a problem with your body image, you have a problem with your gender role in society, um, and you may also have gender dysphoria. But rather than treating them all as separate issues and, you know, saying, okay, we'll, we'll deal with the eating disorder first, and if your gender dysphoria is still here after that, then we'll go about evaluating that and going down transition. But it would be safer to make sure that the gender dysphoria hasn't manifested because of these other things. But everyone, not everyone, a lot of people tend to take all their problems and say, I have these problems because of gender dysphoria. And so if the gender dysphoria is treated, I'll be completely better. But that's what I thought when I was young. And I was wrong, evidently. Hmm. Hmm. When you describe, could you describe what it was that you didn't like about being a woman or that you wanted to be, uh, that you, you perceived men having? Was it just like hmm. the, just watching your body betray you in some manner? Or? I think it was uh, a few different issues. The first was the physical one. So I, I would look at myself in the mirror and it wasn't just an ordinary, oh, I look a bit fat or I look a bit, I don't like the shape of this. I, I looked at it and I thought, I shouldn't have these sexual characteristics. You know, I should have a male body. And, you know, when I looked at the way men are perceived and treated and things like that, I envied them. So I feel that there's certain characteristics that men can have that women are treated differently if they have it and men suffer from it as well so if you look at um stereotypically feminine traits so um being empathetic being nurturing um you know being very gentle being modest if a woman exhibits those traits then it's it's fine if a man exhibits a lot of those traits they're kind of seen as weak you know and kind of mocked in a way Whereas if a man was, you know, apathetic, stoic, cold, um, authoritative and things like that, it's, oh, well, he's a man. That's what men are like. When women are cold or authoritative or anything like that, they're seen as damaged. They're seen as just, you know, oh, there's something's obviously happened to her to make her that cold. Hmm. Um, so I, when I would sort of try and behave in a particular way, I've always felt that because I was a woman, I wasn't being taken seriously or people were judging me in a way that they wouldn't be judging me if I was a man. Whether or not that was true, I don't know, but that's how I felt at the time. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Did you uh, experiment with uh, social transition then when you were a teenager before you discovered the whole trans thing? Not to the extent of literally trying to, to be a man, um, but I, I was what I suppose would be called a tomboy. Um, so quite masculine in my presentation most of the time, but I did have a feminine streak as well. So sometimes I would present in a stereotypically masculine way and that was fine. And other times I would think, oh, fuck it, me and my friends are going out tonight, I'm going to put on a dress and some makeup. And I always noticed that whenever I presented in a particularly feminine way, it tended to garner a lot of very negative attention. Hmm. Um, so I kind of thought it's just safer just not to be or present in a feminine way. And I think gradually over time I began to resent that or re- resent that aspect to myself. Hmm. So, yeah. Did you... Did you... Um... Sorry, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> no, that's okay. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I know that a lot of the detransitioners that I'm speaking to uh, identify themselves as butch lesbians. Um, yes. Or, or yeah, even just question, yeah. even just you know gender non-conforming women, regardless of their sexuality. Um, and you know, you'll say, "Were you like that prior to transition?" And they'll often say yes, and that's one of the reasons why they kind of felt that that gender non-conformity meant they were trans. But I mean. Because I had that feminine streak prior to transition, I'd never really thought as a teenager, this means I should have been born a male. I always recognised it as a a wish that I'd been born male because I envied maleness rather than actually believing that I could Mm. become a biological male. How How was desire, what was the relationship between that and desire, being desired and desiring, or the, the transaction of attraction and relationships? How did that, th- those feelings uh, coincide or, or drive with that aspect of your life? Um, well, before finding out what gender dysphoria was and what transition was and things like that, um, I was... Well, not necessarily happy, but I was content to accept the fact that I could just be a woman who wishes that she was a man, but was never actually going to be one. And then after finding out that medical transition was possible, while I didn't believe that I could literally change my sex, I thought if I can alter and modify my body with the help of testosterone, then that would make me as much of a man as I can be. So it would fulfill that desire that I had. And it just kind of spiraled from there. Hmm. Did you, uh, were you able to contact people who, to speak to, like therapists or any other professional? Oh, yeah. Um, I I think for the past seven years, I've seen quite a lot of counsellors and therapists and things like that. Um, the first time that I told a psychiatrist that I believed that I was suffering from gender dysphoria and wanted to transition was in 2013. And she said, well, then you need to contact the Sandiford, which is the gender care clinic in Glasgow. So I went to my GP and I said, I want to be referred to the Sandiford because I want to transition. And he said, oh, you don't need us to do that for you. You can self-refer. You can call the clinic yourself. So I thought, grand. (laughs) So I eventually called the clinic in 2014. And I was told that there was a 12 to 13 month waiting list. Um... 
which I, I waited and I was seen for my evaluation at the beginning of 2015. Uh, and in that year, uh, did you have any talking therapy or journaling no. or anything like that? Journaling, yes, but during the, the wait, there was no counselling or therapy or anything like that. Hmm. Um, I'm trying to remember all the times I actually have seen counsellors. Um, not to make myself sound a bit mad, but I've had quite a few breakdowns in my life and been sent to the office for <laughs> for a talk. Hmm. So um, I saw a psychiatrist in, well, I saw counsellors in 2012. I saw counsellors and a psychiatrist in 2013. Um, I saw, well, I had to visit the Sandyford periodically for blood checks after starting testosterone from 2015 onwards. Um, and I saw a counsellor in 2018 as well. Okay. So. But how did you deal with the psychological aspect of your desire to be a man? Was it just on your own? Were you... Did you have a support group at all, or was it just YouTube and Tumblr? And <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I could talk to my friends and family about it. Um, they didn't understand any of it. I mean, again, back then, we didn't know what gender dysphoria was or what transition was. So when I said to my best mate, you know, I have gender dysphoria and I'm going to transition, she was like, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay. And then I kind of explained to them what the process was and they were really, really concerned. I mean, I think they all knew that I wasn't very mentally well um, prior to coming out as trans. I mean, I'd I'd had quite a few breakdowns, and back in 2012, before anyone knew that I suffered from gender dysphoria, um, I, I'm sorry to be vague. I'd rather not go into too much detail about it. But my okay. My mental health just spiralled to a point where I think it was about October, it was the first of what would become three suicide attempts, um, complete with uh, another breakdown where my mum and dad physically came to my house and moved me back home because they didn't trust me to be left unattended. Um, so yeah, I could talk to them about what was going on, but when I told them that I wanted to transition, I think their main concern was you're clearly not in a state to decide to make such a permanent change. But I mean, I, I was an adult, so there was nothing they could do to intervene and stop me. And in the end, they felt it's better to support me and keep me in their life than potentially piss me off and make me cut them out. Yeah. Did Which, the medical yeah, industry at all like asked, uh, look into that or in, evaluate that aspect of your life? Well, in, in 2014, um, I had another breakdown and I was convinced by my family to sign myself onto the psychiatric ward. Um, while I was there, it was just, it was awful. Like, I've never felt more pathetic and useless in, in my whole life. I couldn't even stay there for a week. It's, it, I'm not even uh, embarrassed to, to say the name of it. It's called the Gartnavel Royal. It's a hospital near Glasgow, and the staff were horrible. I felt like I wasn't getting any help. And when I was talking to the psychiatrist, um, I was really, really uncomfortable talking about a lot of the things I was struggling with. So I was kind of sitting and spluttering, stuttering, trying to, to explain things, and she was visibly annoyed with me. 
and she was like tapping her finger on her, her notebook and kind of staring at me. And when I explained to her that whenever things got particularly bad, I would turn to alcohol as a self-coping mechanism. And she looked at me and she was like, well, do you not think that if you stop drinking that you'll be fine? It's like, no, it's not that I'm drinking and then being depressed. It's that I'm drinking and then turning to alcohol. Are you not listening to the fucking word that I'm saying? And in the end, she was like, um, yeah, how long do you want to stay for? And I was like, I want to leave tomorrow. And she was like, okay. And I got discharged and that was it. Hmm. Hmm. And when you went to the gender clinic, did that come up at all? Was there any screening or you just you, you, you spent your 14 months waiting and then you were good to go? Well, I, I was in the psychiatric ward at the end of 2014 and seen at the gender clinic at the beginning of 2015. So that was a couple okay. of months apart. And so they, they knew that I'd been on the psychiatric ward. They knew, like, they had access to my medical files. So they knew all of the crazy shit that I'd done throughout my early 20s. Um, and they, they asked about it. And I said, you know, I think that a lot of my behaviours and problems comes purely from the fact that I have dysphoria. And if I transition, all of my mental problems will be solved by that. And, mm. yeah, they didn't challenge that. They didn't. They didn't question whether or not they should treat different issues separately. Um, I mean, I was seen at the clinic twice for an evaluation and conversation. I was seen a third time to be weighed and have my blood pressure taken and things like that, have my hormone levels checked. And then I got a call a couple of months later saying that I'd been approved for testosterone. <laughs> was testosterone as far as you wanted to go? No, I wanted the mastectomy as well. Okay. Um, I, I think I would have went the full route and got the hysterectomy and the phalloplasty as well had I continued on it because the funny thing was I'd convinced myself that medically transitioning would solve my problems so after mm -hmm. being on testosterone and all the problems were still there I thought okay clearly I haven't transitioned enough so as soon as I get the mastectomy then I'll start to feel better so then I had the mastectomy in 2017 and I wasn't magically better anymore. So I had two roads to walk down. I could either continue going for surgeries, continue medically transitioning as far as is currently available, and just hope that at the end of it, I, I wasn't ill anymore. Or I could stop and ask myself whether this is actually what I should be doing, which is what I ended up doing. And now I've detransitioned. <laughs> Why do you think that you took that route? I think it was because for a long time I'd convinced myself that all of my problems were somehow attached to gender dysphoria. And I, I, I was a trans success story, so I passed very well. Um, socially and legally I was recognised as male, all my legal documents were changed. At university I was accepted as a guy, my work colleagues didn't know that I was trans because I, I started working there as Mr. Watson. And, you know, I mean, maybe they were just being polite. Maybe I didn't pass as well as I thought I did, but I was never given any indication that the people in my life knew I was trans. Um, so the testosterone done a hell of a, hell of a job. And I kind of thought, you know, if I'm, I'm transing so well and I'm passing, 
and I've managed to get this far into transition, why do I still feel so uncomfortable with myself? Why do I still have those problems that this was supposed to solve? So I kind of knew at some point I was going to have to address the other problems I had that weren't necessarily about my gender. What did it feel like to uh, morph into um, more male? Like, <laughs> um, it was it was nice to to succeed in the goal that I'd set myself. So you know, when it came to going on testosterone, I had a list of of boxes that I wanted to tick. So I wanted my voice to get deeper. I wanted to grow facial hair. I wanted my fat to redistribute to give me a, a thinner, more angular body shape rather than the hourglass that I had. I wanted the mastectomy to give me that flatter chest. And every single time I was able to tick one of those boxes off, it was like, a, you know, yeah, yeah, I've done it. Yeah, yeah, I've done it. Yeah, yeah, I've done it. Um, so I didn't, I, I don't look at, for example, the results of my mastectomy and feel disgusted all of a sudden. Um, I think it's more of a concern that now that I'm very aware that I wasn't very mentally well at the time I pursued this. It probably wasn't a good idea that I was allowed to permanently alter my body like that. Hmm. Which is, I think, what a lot of detransitioners are talking about, but not all of them regret the changes that they've done to themselves. Some of them are actually very happy with the, the results of the mastectomy. Um, you know, it's more how ethical is it to let someone who has body image issues to permanently change their body before you try and solve it through less intrusive means. Hmm. It seems but you uh, can't do that. A blind spot or, or something indicative of, of the way that we approach uh, the problems of being human. Um, if, if there is a medical way that we can change things, if we can just like physically change it, it it's much easier for us to rely on that than to embrace just how chaotic and complex an issue is. Hmm. So when you, what was, how long did it, did you think through the change of course into detransitioning? And when did you decide that that was the path you're going to go? Hmm. Um, I would say the, the day I normally sort of say is I know that by my 27th birthday, I was starting to struggle with some regrets. So that was January 2018, um, which was around about the time that I dropped out of uni, a couple of months shy of graduating. So that was a fucking <laughs> waste of time. Um, but from that, I, can't, I did what I always did when I was struggling and I completely isolated myself. I stopped mm. going to uni, I stopped going to work. I started drinking heavily, um, which resulted in the, the breakdown that I had in May 2018. And after that point, I was seen you know, by uh, a counsellor and things like that. And at that point, I did say to them, I, I think I regret transition. I think I've made a huge mistake. And he's like, well, what are you going to do about that? And at the time, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I came off testosterone for between four to five months as I tried to make up my mind. But I knew that I didn't want to go down the path to detransition it in case I ended up changing my mind. Um, 
So in the end, I ended up going back on testosterone and saying, I can't handle the idea of detransition right now. I'm too confused. My mind is a mess. I'm fresh off the fucking back end of this quite severe breakdown that I had. So 2019 was the year of I stopped drinking, mostly. Um, And I started just taking better care of myself and started sort of going back and looking at all the problems and issues that I had that really weren't addressed by the gender clinic. Um, I, I became my own therapist in a way for the, the entirety of 2019, right up until the October, when I finally knew for certainty that I was going to detransition. So I've been off testosterone for three months. How is that? No real changes so far. I mean, I don't know. My my friends are sometimes... Did it? Uh, did did testosterone cause you to behave or feel things that now are not there? Um, I'm a lot more emotional, I think, but I don't know if that's just where I'm at just now. I don't know if it's anything to do with the testosterone. Um, I I don't know. Again, I don't know if it's to do with the testosterone. I'm just kind of blaming it on it. But I know that while I was on it, I found it really really difficult to cry. Um, which I used to find was a really good way to just get everything out. Um, but I just, I couldn't really, I couldn't really experience extreme emotion while I was on it. And then after coming off testosterone after about two months, I was like, you know, if I dropped a carton of milk, I would burst into tears. It's like, oh, all these emotions are coming back, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm a lot more uh, in touch with my emotions now, I think. But that could also be the result of actually trying to help myself a little more. I think for the first time in my adult life, I'm actually trying to show myself some compassion. Um, So that could be the reason as well. What are some of the ways in which, and I'm asking this for people who might be listening, who are thinking through something similar or going through something similar to you. What are some of the ways that you've learned how to cope with, uh, with your state of being and, and maintain or reach a place where you're being compassionate to yourself? I think, I mean, it sounds obvious, but it would be talking about the problems that you have and trying to actually address them. So when I thought to myself, I absolutely hate the way that I look, for example. So it's like, well, what do you not like? So if there was, for, I, I always had a big problem with this fear of getting fat. Um, and no offence to fat people or anything like that, each to one's own. Um, but, you know, the idea was, well, okay, then start eating healthily and exercise. So, and exercise and that also released all the endorphins and stuff like that. So I used that as a healthy coping mechanism. Rather than drinking myself blind, I would go for a run. If I was really, really struggling with a lot of emotions, I would call my friend up and I would talk to her about it. Whereas I used to just bottle it all up. Um, there's really no secret sort of um, thing that I can say that's going to be mind-blowing. It's, it's quite obvious what you need to do. The difference is a lot of people who are struggling with themselves don't want to be kind to themselves, but you, that's really the only thing that you can do to get to mm. a better place. Easier said is, than done. Yeah, yeah. What's it like um, having a voice now all of a sudden, people coming to you and asking you questions? Uh, it's kind of nice <laughs> in a way that, you know, it's 
I've got a lot of people who will, will message me and they'll describe their situation and it's remarkably similar to mine. So I'm like, well, mm. you know, I'm not, I'm not completely insane, clearly, because there's other people who have experienced what I've went through. Um, so it's, it's nice. And I think, I mean, sometimes people will say, you know, you're a liar, you're a fake, you're not really a detransitioner, you're just pretending to be. It's like, oh, okay, fuck me then. Um, so sometimes <laughs> it's frustrating, but in the end, I don't really care what internet strangers think. Um, so I'm finding it really easy to just kind of hush out all the assholes and just concentrate on the nice people. But I do want to talk to people who disagree with me as well, because I think that's the only way that we can address a lot of the issues that people are concerned with these days, particularly relating to, to here in Scotland as the gender reformation reforms are about to go on. So I really, really want to kind of speak to people that maybe don't know why that's worrying a lot of people. Could you, you give us an overview that. of that? Well, the gender reformation reforms are proposing to change the process by which people change their sex legally. So, you know, what it wants to do, it wants to reduce the age from 18 to 16 is the minimum age you can do it. It wants to reduce the, the length of time that you need to wait. So you would need to wait three months living as your preferred sex before you could apply for the gender recognition certificate. Um, they don't say what you have to do in order to live as your sex. So you could really just turn up and say, oh, yeah, I've been living as the opposite sex for three months. And then you need to wait three months in a period of reflection before you can obtain obtain the, the certificate. So you sign a statutory declaration saying that you intend to permanently live as the opposite sex. So you don't need to see a professional. You don't need a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. There is there's no... They've, they've turned it from a medical process into an administrative process, um, which is... I'm. I don't think is a very good idea. Um, but the, the really, really big concern for me is if it's, and they're, they're going to make it illegal to make a false statutory declaration. So if someone detransitions, would that be considered a criminal offence because they're regretting their transition and now going back to the old sex? Because it's punishable apparently by up to two years in prison if you're caught lying about it. So I don't really know what's going to happen with that. And having once been someone who believed that I had to transition, it was the only way I could fix myself. I thought that in my 20s and still came to regret it. So the thought of a 16-year-old being able to legally change their sex after six months and then going down the medical path just screams disaster to me. I think 16 is far too young. Is there provisions about the way that parents uh, deal with uh, their 16-year-old child? They're just legally obligated to let the 16-year-old do whatever they want? Yeah. At 16, your parents can't really stop you from doing anything here. Okay, yeah. You guys are wild like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like, it's, at 16, you're considered a legal adult with limitations, so, yeah, you're going to be able to legally change your sex if this bill goes through. But, I mean, you can't buy alcohol, you can't buy cigarettes, you can't go to the cinema and watch an 18-plus movie, but you have the self-awareness and confidence and knowledge of yourself to be able to state 
permanently that you intend to live as the opposite sex. And if you're caught lying about it, that's a criminal offence. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I was a very, very different person at 16 than I was at 20, than I was at 25, than I am now. And I just, I think that's insane, that someone who is 16, your hormones are all over the place, you don't know jack shit, you're practically insane, you're still learning who you are, you're going through this massive period of self-discovery, and you're supposed to be able to know with certainty that you are going to continue to identify this way for the rest of your life. I don't mm. know how you could think any 16-year-old is capable of that. Is there information in schools about gender dysphoria? Is there education going on about what it is, what what it's like, what it's not? Uh, false positives? Is there a healthy discussion in the Sc Scottish public about that? Or is it just uh, crowdsourced through the internet? I'm not really sure. I haven't looked into what's been taught in schools. Um, I know that... Um, I don't know if it was a high school or a primary school. I think it might have been a high school. But when they were talking about sexual education, um, they ended up bringing up, you know, people sometimes identify as the opposite sex and stuff like that. But I don't think it's as insane as, like, the gender unicorn and things like that that yeah. I've seen pop up in America. But I'm not entirely sure. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering because... If you can just self-declare that you're this thing or that thing, like... How does the public know or how does the governing body know or how does anybody know where these ideas are coming from or how they're going to be strained, uh, you know, or, or like distinguish whether or not you – what you think is true is true or not true? Because don't we kind of know that just because we think something doesn't mean that that, that thing is true? Uh, I just – I wonder if there's any provisions at all in this uh, – gaining this certificate. Um, and then the certificate presumably gives you access to all the medical care that you want? Yeah. I mean, that's the really big problem is when someone is like legally changing their sex and they've decided to identify a certain way, people will say, well, that doesn't mean they have to medically transition. They don't have to, but that's where that path leads to. It's an inevitably going to take you to medical transition. Um, that might not mean that 16-year-olds are going to be getting vaginoplasties and phalloplasties and things like that. But, you know, it will lead them... I, I know that you can start testosterone in some places as young as 15, and I'm speaking to a couple of detransitioners just, just now who started testosterone when they were 14 and then got a mastectomy when they were 17 or 18. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I don't I don't really know hmm. what's, what's going to happen if this bill goes through, but I know that it's going to be leading people as young as 16 down a medical road, and it makes me really uncomfortable. Is there, um, what's the, what's the uh, social uh, response, or is there a healthy debate around this, or is, the, is everybody kind of pushing for it in one direction? Honestly, like, there's really not much conversation among the people that I know. Um, my family and friends had never heard of the Gender Reformation uh, reform until I told them at Christmas. Um, mm. I know that there's the, the LGB alliance in Scotland are talking about it um, and they're being called transphobic for talking about it but as far as you know, general public discussion I've not seen a lot of it. I don't think people even know that it's happening. Mm. Do you know at all where the bill came from? or I know it's, research it's, into that. 
It's the second consultation of its kind. There was another consultation that was released for public debate a couple of years ago. Um, I can't remember exactly what year. I think it might have been 2014, maybe. Um, which, you know, back then I didn't even know that that had happened. So when I started reading about this consultation, it was like, oh, this is the second consultation. It's like, when the fuck was the last one? Like, I don't know, it seems to slip under the radar and people don't really know that these conversations are going on. Yeah, there was this uh, report that I've mentioned before, but I I forgot to do research on it again. Um, about there, there's a couple of uh, there's a law firm and a uh, I believe it's a activist group that have come up with this very extensive report between thirty and ninety pages about how to force this kind of legislation through, uh, piggybacking on other issues and not even allowing for public debate, just getting it into law right away, um, specifically around uh, transition mm-hmm. or the acceptance of trans and the <clears throat> enforcement of, of that whole transition. What do you think about medically, like if you just continue to be a male on all of your paperwork, but then you have specifically female problems on a medical level? How, did you interact with that at all? Uh, and was there like difficulty navigating that? Well, after my uh, sex was changed or gender, whatever word people prefer I use, um, when that was changed officially in the, the system at my doctor's office, um, because I was registered as male, I stopped getting letters about, oh, you need to come for a smear test, you need to come for, for female-related checks, um, which is scary in particular for women who are on testosterone because of what long-term testosterone use can do to your reproductive system. I mean, I don't know if you know about, you know, the the atrophy that nearly killed Buck Angel, for example. Um, A little bit. Could you describe just atrophy, like the... the whole system just starts imploding or something turning into a resin kind of thing. <laughs> um, well well the, so the funny thing is when you inject testosterone into a female body it starts fucking with the natural state of how things are supposed to work because funnily enough the female reproductive system needs estrogen to function properly so when you start fucking with that it's uh can lead to disaster so what happened with buck angel and what happens with atrophy is the, the vagina and the female reproductive uh, stuff all function with oestrogen. So when you overtake the oestrogen levels with testosterone, it can affect it functioning in a healthy manner. So a buck angel, the walls of his vagina hardened, his uterus and his cervix fused together, an infection set and got septic and he nearly died. Hmm. Um, so... Obviously, he he had to go and get checks and things like that, so he would have had a a pap smear. That didn't tell the doctors how bad the insides were. They only found that out after they'd done an ultrasound. Trans men don't go for ultrasounds. So, I mean, unless they're in agony or they collapse like Buck Angel did, they're not going to know what's happening in there. So, you know, for me, the big concern was, I remember reading somewhere that Long-term use, so anywhere over five years, is going to start having a negative effect in there. And I do remember, particularly after exercise, I used to get really, really bad cramps. But I thought, oh, I've just worked out too hard. Uh, I I didn't know anything about atrophy. I'd never been told about that or warned about that at the clinic. Um, And then I read that, oh, 
around about the five-year mark, you might want to start looking into getting a hysterectomy because if you don't, complications might arise. I was on testosterone for a little over four and a half years. So I was approaching that stage and I thought, so if I didn't detransition, was the clinic ever going to contact me to be like, hey, we realise that you've been on testosterone for five years, so it's probably about time you go for the hysterectomy because we don't want you to die. Mm. <laughs> so mm. like, no, there's... I can't speak for it anywhere else, but certainly at my yeah. clinic, there was no information about atrophy. Yeah. that This entire issue could probably be, uh, I mean, will have to be uh, corrected with uh, refined transmedical care. But it's just interesting that the conversation that involved the, the, the part of the conversation that involves the activists that are kind of trying to, you know, impress certain sorts of thought on uh, the rest of society is stopping the the pr- the process of actual actually taking care over time of mm. this human engineered category of human at this time. I mean, I think especially with like what the trans activists are doing and saying and stuff like that. Obviously, they support, for example, the Gender Recognition Act that's going to go through, and their their big concern is because of the the massive surge in the number of referrals to gender clinics, the waiting times are getting longer and longer and longer. And so, if mm-hmm. the Gender Reformation Bill passes, then they won't have to do all that waiting. So they they can just wait the six months and then they can transition. What they're not asking and what we're not allowed to ask because it's transphobic is why there's this massive influx of, of trans uh, people going to these gender clinics. Something happened in 2013 that kicked off this massive surge. If you look at the Tavistock, since 2013, there's been a rise in referrals of, I think it's something like 438%. At the Sandiford, which is my clinic, since 2013, there's been a rise in referrals of over 700%. You've, you've went from these clinics that used to have 30, 40, you know, men and 30, 40 women. Well, it used to be, there used to be more men referred. So mm. I think if I'm remembering correctly, at the Tavistock in 2009 to 2010, there was 36 females and 40 males referred. Fast forward to 2019 to 2000, uh, 2018, 2019, there was 640-odd males referred and over 1,700 females referred. So it's like the reason why the waiting times are so long is because they just don't have the resources to see this many people in rapid succession. So, you know, they they want to fast-track people through transition, and the gender reformation reforms will let that happen. The problem is if the result of this influx is social contagion, and a lot of these people, particularly young girls, are going to end up regretting transition because it's not actually gender dysphoria they have, pushing through these reforms is going to be a disaster. And I think if it goes through, the 2020s are going to see just unimaginable levels of regret, and it's terrifying. But I can't Mm. say that because it makes me a bigot. You know, in America, we have this whole... uh litigious society uh, do you guys do you think that that lawsuits will happen in scotland i don't know how you guys are set up in that way i think it will depend on the age of the person who goes through it so you know for example when i've i've been talking about my transition that i regret it 
a lot of people said, oh, why don't you sue them? I mean, I, I simply I can't and I don't think I would ever attempt it because I was an adult. I was in my 20s. I need to accept responsibility for that. Um, but I mean, I think that if you started the transition process at 16 and were fully affirmed and allowed and helped to do that by doctors, only to later on find out you had a completely different issue or issues and you regret it, I think there could be lawsuits there. Hmm. Do you think um, that that would be what changes the course of things? Or do you think, do you, do you have hope that dialogue will slow down? I have the, the optimistic hope that dialogue will help. But let's be perfectly honest, people have been talking about this for a little while now and it seems to be just getting worse. I mean, everything that happened with, you know, Maya Forstarter and stuff like that, the fact that you can't even say that biological sex cannot change is causing people to, to lose their minds. It's like, but, like, I don't understand how we got to this stage where we're denying biological sex. I mean, it didn't used to happen. It's happening now. So even though that we've been talking about this and there has been a dialogue for at least the past, you know, five or six years, when, when, when did Caitlyn Jenner come out? 2015? So that was when trans issues went mainstream and people were talking about it. It was in news articles, there was documentaries made about it. And since then, it mm. seems to be getting, in, in my view, uh, more... There's less room to for constructive criticism, I think. Mm -hmm. Everything has been branded transphobic. J.K. Rowling was branded transport, for fuck's sake. She, you can't get more liberal than J.K. Rowling. <laughs> She's been called a bigot. Jesus Christ. I mean, that's huh. where we're at. I thought, you know, I, I have hope, but I'm not, I'm not convinced that's going to happen. In your case, you describe your transition as uh, being uh, some sort of remedy for your issue. I wonder if there's other desires or, or motivations for uh, transition. Do you have uh, contact with, uh, I guess now you have contact with uh, the detransitioner, uh, like a number of detransition people, but do you, do you foresee the need for support groups, uh, for, for uh, more, more dialogue about the root causes of the desire to transition? Hmm. Yeah, I think that well, I, some people have tried to talk about it. I can't remember her name. Um, in fact, I'm fairly certain you've had her on one of your podcasts. Uh, she's a therapist, and she was talking about, um, you know, a, a lot of teenagers who have teenage issues are mistaken typical teenage worries and insecurities and stuff like that as proof that they are suffering from gender dysphoria. And she made a really, really good point in the article that I read about a lot of people who are presenting at the clinics and a lot of the people who, once she's gained up trust with her, are starting to be a little bit more honest about the path that they took to get the diagnosis for gender dysphoria. And one of the things a lot of them are admitting to is that they preemptively had the gender dysphoria before they were able to identify the actual issues that gave them it. So they would discover gender dysphoria online and then they would look back to their childhood and they would say, oh, well, I was a tomboy when I was a child, but now I know that means it was because I hated being a female. Or they'll look back at a time in the, their teenage years when they were, I don't know, a butch lesbian, and they would look back and say, well, it wasn't that I was butch, it was that I wanted to be male. 
so that they're, they're preemptively going back in time and changing the way they look at instances from their past and presenting it now as proof that they had gender dysphoria. And that makes a lot of sense to me. But if you even try to broach that conversation in public, you're hateful and you're causing trans people to kill themselves. Mm, well, yeah, there's that. Um, this is really disingenuous. <clears throat> there, th- what, what you describe here is one of the reasons how I ended up investigating this topic and speaking and going down this uh, path of, of just collating interviews with people. Um, because I was studying uh, racial politics in, in America, specifically in universities, and now in Washington State Legislature, where they they look at data and they only read it through a racist lens. They they see mm. and then and then they modified their their definition of racism to basically give the result that everything is racist. And then they yeah. get to make all these different rules and laws and societal changes because. That it's just completely tautological. There's, there's no, and then when you try to ask about it, what well, one you can't be this person. You, know, <laughs> you can't. Uh, but two, e- even if you're not this person, there's something wrong with you if you, if you start to investigate these claims. Uh, these claims are all bundled together too. Like there's this weird. You can see this over and over again, and and it. It's it, on one level, it is low hanging fruit because these are just people on Twitter. These are people on social media just putting this stuff together. But I see this pattern over and over again where transphobia and white supremacy and uh, you know, capitalism, like all these, all these different issues, are put under the same umbrella. Just like what you're saying with gender dysphoria, all these different issues are put under this one all consuming, you know, I, I guess solution, like this final yeah. solution, you know. <laughs> it's really, really disturbing sorry, for that it's reference. The same with like the the complete inability to to accept constructive criticism. It's become anathema to a lot of activists where you can't even say, look, I completely support trans people. And in the case of genuine transsexuals, when they have been properly evaluated over more, preferably than a handful of meetings, and they transition and it works well for them and their dysphoria alleviates, Grand, good for them, very happy for them, I'll use their preferred pronouns. But can we please have a discussion about the possibility that we may be diagnosing a few people with gender dysphoria when they may actually have another condition? It's like, no, you're transphobic. It's like, we can't even talk about it. And like, we can't even talk about detransition, like the amount of times that detransitioners have been like, I'm a detransitioner, and the, the reaction is, no, you're lying. No, you're a fake. No, I don't believe you. You're clearly a gender-critical, radical feminist troll pretending to be a detransitioner. And then when we show ourselves, and it's like, hello, I am a detransitioner, it's like, yeah, well, now you're being used as a weapon. You're letting yourself be used as a weapon to attack trans people. And when, you know, Dr. James Caspian tried to actually do some research into uh, transition regret, the proposal was refused on the grounds that it was politically incorrect and offensive. And like, do do you know the story of why Dr. Caspian decided that he wanted to start that research? No. He he was talking to another doctor, and you'll have to forgive me because I can't remember his exact name. It was Dr. Dr. Miroslav Jetjevic or something like that, and he's a surgeon. And he told Dr. Caspian that he was noticing he was performing more uh, sexual reassignment surgery reversals 
So Dr. Caspian thought, okay, um, if people are regretting it, if there's more people detransitioning, if there's more people getting reversal surgery, we should research this, we should look into it, which was why he wanted to pursue the research. But what trans activists said was that's not why he wanted to pursue the research. He wanted to pursue the research because he's transphobic. <laughs> and it's like, how do mm-hmm. you, like, I don't understand. Like, mm-hmm. doesn't it work in the best interest of trans people as well that we know why this is happening? Because if there's more and more people who aren't going to benefit from transition filling up the gender clinics, it's increasing the waiting time for the people who would benefit from it. So would they not want to know mm-hmm. what's going on with with transition regret. It, I, I, I wonder, there's like some people just want to watch the whole world go trans. Maybe that's like one of the motivations. Like if, if, if I can see my experience replicated by everybody else, then it validates me. If I see my experience being contradicted by somebody else, then that invalidates me, which totally shows you that this person is not mentally stable, is not in possession of their own life and their own, you know, discomfort and their own transition uh, mm. because they, they can't, they can't stomach it being contradicted by something out there. And, and they have glommed on or developed. And, and again, it's, it's a lot of these different activist groups. They, they, there's these rhetorical tricks that shut down discourse um, you have this one umbrella that solves everything, and everything that doesn't align with achieving that is the, the opposite. You know, like if if you're not on board with the redistribution of wealth along racial lines, which is what Washington State's trying to do, you are de facto racist. You know, mm-hmm. if you if you are questioning, if you're skeptical about transition for anybody at any given time in their life, then you are the opposite. You're, you're a hateful person. It doesn't, it's, it not only doesn't not make sense, it's not sustainable. That cannot sustain. And the other rather confusing part is they they treat other transsexuals like that as well. So, you know, there's plenty of perfectly reasonable uh, transsexuals out there who are just like anybody else. And if even they have the audacity to say, Mm -hmm. we should probably have a look at why you know why this is happening it's like oh you're you're a bad trans person it's like like a heretic they get kicked out of the community it's like jesus christ you know because that's the thing like people will will call me transphobic for some of my viewers i have a lot of transsexual friends and they agree Mm. with me but they don't Mm. go public and i get involved with this because they recognize what their, their words not mine they recognize how much of a cult the trans community is becoming and it's like, oh, well, fuck <laughs> okay. So why would you go out and... Because they, they, they live stealth, so they, they don't publicly identify as transsexual, they just identify as the opposite sex. So they're not going to out themselves to have this conversation just for the trans community to point at them and say that they're transphobic. There's mm. so many reasonable, intelligent transsexuals out there that are sick and tired of the trans activists fucking it up for all of them. Mm-hmm. That's the other reason why I went down this because I saw I was I was approached off camera by people saying the, these crazy people don't represent me at all. Yeah. Um, so there's that accusation you brought up of you you're being used. What do you think you want to accomplish by speaking about it? What would you like to serve? What purpose or what use? 
would you like to have mm. in speaking about this? I want there to be, I want, first of all, I want them to allow more research into gender dysphoria and why there's the surge in referrals and why there are more and more detransitioners popping up. I want there to be a lot more evaluation and therapy. I don't think you should be fast-tracked through the system right into medical intervention. I think we need to find out exactly what's going on. Um, I think that we should be able to be in a situation where we can have an open and honest conversation about gender dysphoria and transition and, you know, things like, do trans women have an unfair advantage in sports? Can we talk about that and look at the research without pissing people off? So I just want for to be able to have conversation. Hmm. But what people are saying is that detransitioners will get picked up by right-wing Christians, they'll get picked up by gender-critical radical feminists who apparently want all trans people to disappear and they want medical transition not to be an option which in my experience isn't true because I speak to a lot of gender critical mm. radical feminists and they don't want to remove the option of gender transition. They just don't want it to be very easily accessible to young people, which I agree mm. with. But I don't consider myself a ge- gender critical radical feminist and I don't feel like I'm being used by them. Mm-hmm. Do you have... Uh, uh, do, are you somebody who thinks in terms of having an ideological leaning or like a... Is there a name for um, what you are? The the only <laughs> label that I feel comfortable applying to myself is a humanist. Um, mm. I mean, mm. when it comes to the radical feminists, oh, God, God bless them, right? I, I, they're really, really nice to me on Twitter, right? And I agree with some of the things that they have to say. Um, but fundamentally, there's there's beliefs that they have that I just don't agree with. You know, I don't believe that I live in a patriarchal society. I don't believe that I'm oppressed here in in Britain. I mean, I don't know, the idea that all the men have the power. We had Theresa May as a Prime Minister there. The First Minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, is a woman. The current Home Secretary, Priti Patel, is a woman. I've never worked in a job where I was paid less for the same job as my male colleagues and stuff. So I just, I don't feel like I live in an oppressed patriarchal society. I don't have a problem with porn. I don't think that if a consenting, willing couple want to choke and slap one another in the bedroom, I don't care, do whatever you want as long as there's consent, right? And then I'll go on to to Twitter and all the radical feminists that I'm friends with are talking about the patriarchy, they're talking about how rough sex is proof that the boyfriend hates his girlfriend if he wants to do all that to her. And I just, I don't buy any of it. Um, But I am with them in terms of biological males do not belong in female-only rape centres, for example. Biological males have no business competing in competitive sports with females. So, like, I agree with them on a lot of issues, but I also disagree with them on a lot. Um, hmm. So I, that's why I don't wear the label gender-critical radical feminist. Hmm. And the idea that I'm some kind of right-wing Christian shill, um, I'm, an, <laughs> I'm an anti- religious atheist i hate religion no offense if you're religious i just don't like it um Mm. and if i had to pick a side i would be traditionally left wing so Mm. i I don't know where all these Mm. accusations are coming from they just find it easier to lump people under these bad sounding terms because like they they call them TERFs, like trans exclusionary radical feminists i'm guilty of it when i was trans i used to go after the TERFs as well 
not Ooh, okay. but I, yeah i did used to do that <laughs> um <laughs> but the, the problem is is that you know at least when i done it i still wanted to talk to them you know i was like oh turf come and argue with me whereas mm. these days it's being used as that person is a turf therefore don't talk to them don't listen to anything they have to say turfs are evil they shouldn't have a platform they shouldn't have a dialogue so they're using that term which the trans exclusionary or gender critical whatever they call themselves which they're saying is now a slur because it is being used to paint them in a purely negative light and to essentially get them kicked off of online platforms mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's a mess <laughs> hmm. so you say you're detransitioning do you perceive yourself um, doing that socially or are you just taking care of the, the physical aspect now? And what, do, what do you see as the steps that you'll take to detransition? Is it, is it, are you going to actively do that or just kind of let it go? And... Um, well, when I go out in public and things like that, sometimes, not all the time, when I can be bothered, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll put on my wig and I'll put on my makeup and stuff like that. 50% of the time I'm missed, 50% of the time I'm mustered, um, which, you know, again, is another thing that's kind of antithetical to the gender critical perspective, because they're very much, you know, you don't have to look like a stereotypical female to, to be a woman. So, you know, you shouldn't have to wear the wig, you shouldn't have to wear the makeup. I know I don't have to, I'm choosing to present that way so that there's a, a you know, Ice Cube's chance in hell that I'm going to be perceived as a woman again. Because, mm. you know, the, the testosterone had such a strong effect on me that if I if I shave in the morning, within 12 to 24 hours, I have a five o'clock shadow. Um, you know, I have a big bald patch at the back of my head. My voice is obviously dropped, and this is me making a conscious effort to try and speak in a slightly higher pitch. So, like, I've, all, I've had the mastectomy. So, I mean, if, if I don't take steps to feminise myself, I will not be perceived as a woman in public. And whether or not people think that I should care about that type of thing, I do care about that type of thing. Yeah. And would you mind telling us why? Or what, what that would give you? What is it like <coughs> to be perceived as a female? Why is that something you desire to be perceived as? A part of my sort of... This whole new... F- thing of trying to be nice to myself and compassionate to myself and learning to sort of love and accept myself and stuff like that. I'm I'm very self-aware that leading up to transition, I had very, very unpleasant views, not just about myself, but about womanhood. And for a period while I was actually living as a trans man, I had what I think probably could accurately be described as misogynistic views. Um, so a part of coming to terms with the fact that, you know what, uh, there's nothing wrong with being a woman. There's nothing wrong with me being a woman. There's nothing wrong with me liking stereotypically feminine things. So, yeah, I think being perceived as a woman is as part of me accepting that I am a woman. Hmm. So hmm. would you mind terribly if I smoked? No. Okay. It's just in case you're trying to trying to quit. I don't like smoking. People like that. <laughs> That's fine. I can wait. I'm down um, to one a day now. I'm down to five a day. Because um, do you nice. know Rachel Rooney? Uh, I don't. Maybe. That sounds familiar. 
she was she's the author of uh, My Body Is Me, the the lovely little children's book oh, yeah, that yeah, got yeah. transformed. Well, um, she's she's quitting just now, and um, you know I, I, I mentioned on Twitter, you know I was like I should try quitting. And now she's checking in on me. She's like, "How are you doing?" <laughs> I'm down to five. <laughs> I, I do want to to be off them by the end of this month because I turn twenty nine in two weeks. So mm. I want to be smoke free by then. But we'll see. I got in trouble for um, saying online that I don't disbelieve in astrology because I don't. I neither believe nor disbelieve in it, but. I have seen like the Saturn returns thing, like this twenty eight, twenty nine kind of. Where am I headed? And maybe I want to go in a different direction that a lot of us go through. Yeah. Do you think that you will get Rachel Rooney? Or in fact, have you ever considered trying to get Buck Angel on? Uh, I I went through uh, introductions, uh, but then I, I I go through phases with uh, the topics and with interviewing, and and I was at when when I made contact with. Buck, I'm like, I need, I need, a, I need to take a break from interviewing. I, it, it's an odd, it's an odd sort of burnout. I can't really, I should try to describe it because this, it's just a form of burnout that is peculiar. Too much um, social interaction. <laughs> uh, too much. Um, like I have to be myself because the interview process for me is like really just attending to the other person, and I get. I, I I get worn out doing that, and and then I don't do quality. I, I'm no longer able to to ingest any more other person. So yeah, especially if you're you're hearing sometimes quite harrowing stories, because you know I watched mm. your interview with Rachel, and uh, that was absolutely heartbreaking. And I can imagine mm. that if you were talking to a lot of people who have really sad stories, that would affect you as well, wouldn't it? I wonder. I don't feel. Sometimes I feel like I need sometimes there's like where I need to like let go of what I what I what I accepted but that one felt very clean to me. I felt like she was so centered in where she she is now and she was so measured. It was just such a great like I felt like enriched just being in her presence because uh, it had a happy ending. <laughs> Well, just the her the, the her tone, her perspective, like where she is, like and how she's relating everything was just very, uh, just very inspiring. Uh, I don't know, just good. It was just like good. It's like being in a garden, you know, yeah. like, just in a garden. So, do you have? Do you think that? Um, do you have any projects that you want to do? Or are you thinking about? Uh, this is something that you uh, like. That like what you're doing now is this a form of therapeutic behavior, or is this like something that you you feel like that, that is drawing you into it, and you want to do more of? It's definitely got a therapeutic quality to it. I think because you know, obviously, when you talk about your problems with other people who have similar experiences, you bounce off one another, and you kind of learn more about yourself by doing it. And you know, I'm I'm in. Uh, a private chat with almost 50 other detransitioners. Mm. So, I mean, there's you hear a lot of different perspectives. Sometimes it gives you a new way of looking at things. And when you're having a particularly bad day, sometimes you need to hear from someone who's actually been through it themselves. Because, I mean, my, my mm. best friend, we've been close for going on 20 years. You know, I, I love her like a sister and I can tell her anything. 
But as far as what it feels like to transition and then detransition, she has no idea how to, to broach that subject with me. Whereas if I talk to another detransitioner, they can be like, I know what you mean, this is how I felt and this is what I did to deal with those feelings. Mm. So it's it's definitely brought a positive aspect into my life. As far as what I'm going to do with it, um, I don't know, I'm going to be attending a few events this month, um, you know, just to, to see what the conversation on the whole topic is. If mm -hmm. I can help in any way by talking about transition regret and detransition, then I'll do it. But I don't have any intention of, you know, becoming a full-time YouTuber or anything like that. I'll, mm -hmm. I'll come on and have conversations with people when I'm invited. But, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't plan on making a job out of it or anything. At what point in your path through transition did you experience regret? Or was it preceded by doubt first? I would say, like, in July 2017, I had the mastectomy. And that was followed by a couple of months of of bliss, of being like, I'm finally here, I got the mastectomy, so now things are only going to get better. And then at the end of 2017, I would say there was some some doubts, some, some dark parts in my mind coming out where I was like, okay, all the problems are still here. Hmm. When, when the, the blissful part kind of faded away, when the novelty of that wore off, I was looking at all the same problems that I'd been dealing with before I transitioned. Um, and then 2018 arrived and the doubt gradually cemented into regret in my mind. And it, it, it knocked me off my feet because I thought, Jesus Christ, I've so dramatically altered myself. I cannot believe that I regret this. Um, so, yeah, it happened over a period of several months, I think. And then after admitting for the first time that I regretted it in mid-2018 when I told my, my doctor, it took me an entire year before I was confident in my decision enough to actually start the process of detransition. So it certainly wasn't something that I rushed into because I learned that really nothing good is from rushing into anything. Nothing good comes from rushing into anything was a lesson that I learned when I transitioned. So not repeating that mistake again. What are some of the um, patterns that you've seen among your detransitioner community about dealing with or coping with that regret? Like what are some of the useful perspectives that you guys have generated? I think the the universal agreement is that you need to reach out to other detransitioners because if you just talk about detransition generally online, you're probably going to receive a lot of hostility. Um, you know, detransitioners who, for example, go onto Twitter and talk about detransition, if the, the trans rights activists find that tweet, they'll go after that person. So at least if they are in contact with other detransitioners, not only do they have other people to share their concerns and their regrets with, but they have other people to be there to say, you'll never be ganged up on, right? We've got your back. You won't have to deal with us alone. So it's it's nice to feel that there are people out there that will stick up for you if you get bullied. So that's helpful. But then, you know, you need mm -hmm. to be able to, to change anything in your life that, is making you feel more negative. So for me, I had to stop self-soothing with alcohol. 
I had to start being open and honest with my friends and family. Whenever I started feeling myself spiralling into depression, I had to get out of the house and not focus on all the things that upset me. Um, and I, I, I've suffered from quite extreme insomnia for the, the whole of my 20s. So when it gets really bad, I go to the doctor and I get my Zobaclone because I know if I go a couple of days without sleep, it causes me to it causes my mood to plummet, which then offsets a chain of events which in the past have led to some severe mental breakdowns. So I'm just taking better care of myself and I'm looking out for the signs of when I need to do those things. Hmm. Hmm. So you're becoming wise. Ah, uh, we'll, we'll put it like that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the resources that you think um, that you would recommend for parents of uh, children who are uh, considering transition or just resources in transition itself? I would tell them that if if transition is concerning you, then obviously uh, I would look up studies and, and things like that. If it's in particular, it's detransition that concerns you, I would reach out to the Detrans Advocacy Network. Um, you know, they're in contact with a lot of detransitioners. Um, they probably know more about the, we'll call it the detrans experience than most professionals mm. do because a lot of these detransitioners mm. aren't going back to their clinics and reporting what's going on which is one of the main reasons why the the official statistic of detransitioners is apparently very small. But I mean, if you if you were to go to the Sandyford and ask for their statistics, they would be, at the very least, they would be up one successful transition and down one detransitioner because they don't know I've detransitioned. So mm. a, a lot of the clinics don't know how many detransitioners are were once treated at their clinic because the the detransitioners are not reporting their detransition. So if you want to know what detransition entails and you want to know what detransitioners go through, you need to talk to detransitioners rather than seek out clinics. Hopefully that'll change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like the uh, these gender clinics need to get on the ball with uh, facilitating um, resources for desisters <coughs> and detrans detransitioners well when I was speaking to the council in 2018 um, it, it was one of the main experiences that convinced me I'm not going back to the gender clinic because I was talking to this counsellor and I was very honest with them I just said look I regret my transition it was a huge mistake and I'm going to go back to living as a woman and he got so uncomfortable um, he was fidgeting in his chair and he was like do you not think that it's possible you're non-binary and I was like, I, I don't believe non-binary is a thing. I, yeah, I'm like, it's like what? The, like this is a counselor, and wow. and I, you know, I said, you know, I think that non-binary identities are bullshit. And he got offended. Like there was another woman in the room, so like I was sitting in front of him, he was sitting in front of me. Beside him was a woman who was kind of taking notes, and he kind of turned around like, oh. <laughs> like to the woman. <laughs> I was like, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm being too honest for you, mate. And like, and I went away, right? So this is at a time where um, my my friends and family were like, you need to to seek professional help because because this was also shortly after I'd, I just had that breakdown. And I went back and I told my best friend, I was like, I'm not going back there because they're all ridiculous. And she was like, if you don't go back, I'm going to be really angry with you. And I was like, come with me. So. 
I went to see, <laughs> I went to see these these two women with my friend. She came in with me, and I sat and I had a conversation with them. And I was trying to explain to them, um, again with when I was struggling with a lot of my issues, um, I would rely on alcohol, and I was explaining about you know I'm going to stop drinking. I'm going to start being more honest with myself. I'm going to admit that I made a mistake. And they were sitting there going, like, you know, well, maybe you didn't make a mistake. You know, maybe, maybe it's not regret you're dealing with. And we walked out of the doctor's office and my friend looked at me and she was like, yeah, fair enough, right? You don't need to go back. It was like mm. these people, it's like they don't listen to what you say. And if you say something that they personally, not professionally, that they personally disagree with, they they communicate that to you. And when you have to face that you don't want to go back to see these people you're wasting your time because they're not listening to what you're telling them so they can't help you so again from what you're saying and what other people have expressed is that it's not even that these gender clinics aren't staffed for detransitioners they are not staffed with people who even have the cognitive ability to perceive somebody going through a different issue this entire issue and that comes down to i'm going to proposition it comes down to the ideology that dictates that they they're they're operating from a belief system they are not scientists barely professionals from Mm. from that from what you're telling me well it's either that they personally believe those things or that they don't believe those things but they're so afraid that the accusation of transphobia will threaten their livelihood that they can't can't be honest about those things. I mean, was it was it the Tavistock that there was thirty five uh, personnel that, that walked out of that, and they said it was because they felt that these children were essentially being experimented on when it came to issuing them puberty blockers, and most of them didn't even identify themselves because getting branded with the accusation of transphobia would probably mean they would never work in the industry again. Mm-hmm. So it's difficult to to have these conversations when people are too afraid to talk about them. Mm-hmm. And that's just it's that's mind-bogglingly <clears throat> the malfeasance or malfeasance malpractice. Like like you're experimenting on humans' livelihoods. You're not giving them thorough care. You're rushing now. You're rushing their care, and then you're handing out uh, you know body transforming hormones to these people uh, and then you're not even going through the motions or you're even actively shutting down motions to research what is actually going on and they're not doing the follow-ups that they're supposed to be doing, doing um, I think the, the longest follow-up study that I've read it was in Sweden and it was between ni- 1973 to 2003 so it was over 30 years and mm-hmm. the conclusion was that post-operative transsexuals, so people who had been through sexual reassignment, the suicide attempt rate and the actual suicide rate was considerably higher compared to the general population. So the idea that we need to allow people to transition as soon as possible, because if we don't, they're all going to kill themselves, the the follow-up study that we have indicates that the suicide rate is still phenomenally high. Mm-hmm. And if we can't, if we're not doing more follow-ups, we don't know where that stands today, because if that that study was in Sweden, why aren't there long-term follow-up studies happening in Britain? Why aren't there long-term follow-up studies happening over the sea in 
in America and Canada and things like that. Mm-hmm. And given that though this research isn't being done, or or at least I I've not heard that it's being done, how how can you look at that and then say, oh well, that doesn't matter. We're still going to change the law to allow transition to be easier to access. And I just this I can't believe that this is is being done by medical professionals who have made the the promise to do no harm because they are doing harm and it's it's i think when the cover is blown off of this in 5 10 15 years time it's going to be as big as as the the pedophile priest scandal because i think that it's going to hurt a lot of children mm-hmm. and young people mm-hmm. and like i i don't want that to happen like that's the thing i i really hope that i'm wrong but with everything that i've seen i have this just horrible sinking feeling in my stomach that this is what's going to happen so hopefully i'm wrong hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the with those uh, there's so many different things when you're talking about the um the long-term study about suicide rates uh, it might be different because now it's more socially acceptable or more socially accepted or there's more people so there might be more networks maybe one of the things that leads to suicide is a feeling of alienation a feeling of nobody's like you and maybe you know having more people like you uh will will change that but um at what cost I guess, you know, that, that we enable, uh, this and, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm basically libertarian. Um, I basically, I don't want to dictate how other people act, uh, or, you know, I don't want to dictate anybody's gender roles or anything like that. I have my preferences and I'm not going to shy away from, from expressing my preferences, but, um, but when that's packaged, when all that social progress is packaged with this, we're going to silence speech. Everything that's anti-liberal is packaged mm-hmm. with everything progressive. I have to, you know, bite the bullet and be a bigot if that's what helps the conversation move away from uh, a, a, a dark uh, consequence. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really sad for for people who are libertarian or are liberal. Because it used to be that it was the left wing who would fight, for example, when when Christian parent groups would try to censor things that offended them. You know, for the longest time, it was the left that fought censorship, that fought for, th- for free speech. And now, with, with all this shit going on, the lefties were all standing here going, oh, Christ, I don't want to call myself left wing anymore because of what they're doing, because <laughs> they're, they're insane. Like, I just, I don't understand really what's happened, but in particular when it comes to the LGBT folks. It's Mm. an absolutely insane level of, you can't criticize them, you can't question them. Um, People who happen to be gay or trans or any of the other made up stuff, um, like you, you can't criticize them for something not even related to LGBT issues and you can still get branded homophobic or transphobic for it. And it's like, it's, we're not even talking about gay issues or trans issues. It's like, if you say, oh, that, that gay comedian is a shit comedian. Oh, you're homophobic. It's like, what? <laughs> okay. The, you know? what, what I'm looking at right now with my research into Washington politics is that people are using, now it's acceptable to use your racial category, as long as you're the minority, to, to completely shut down any criticism. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is antithetical to the claim that 
the, they they are the minority. They are the underserved. They are the you know they they are the marginalized. They're writing laws now. They're literally in power, and they're using their status of being disempowered to to shut down any <laughs> criticism. And it is just like no, you can't you can't pull that. How how is people allowing you to do that? Like, why are we enshrining this? Because because ultimately, the people that that take advantage of that aren't the good people. Aren't the people who really do need a little boost, a little extra voice? It's the people who tend to be narcissists, tend to not be good at anything other than manipulating people. That say, oh, here's my chance to finally be an asshole because I can never <laughs> stop being an asshole. But now it's okay to do that. All I have to do is put on this category or, or use my category, whatever mm-hmm. category. Glory that is to get just a, a, a license to to be a tyrant, um, and it pops yeah, up even, over and over and over again in different. Discussions. Even just like the idea that the, the the idea of privilege and things like that. When people say that you know, when it comes to to sexuality, you know, all heterosexual people have so many privileges over gay people, or white people have so many privileges over black people, or non-trans people have privileges over trans people which you know i can see a case for it but it's you can also recognize that depending on where you are in life is also going to have a role in the privileges that you have so for example if you are gay or black or trans but you're also rich you're going to have like so many privileges over everyone poor so you know the the idea that just because someone has one of these minority traits doesn't necessarily mean that they have a, a harder lot in life than everyone else that doesn't also share that attribute, and that's one of the things that I I kind of clash with with the radical feminists on. I mentioned that earlier where they say that all women are oppressed by all men. It's like well I'm sorry but I don't think that the queen or anything like that is oppressed by the homeless guy down the street, and you know it's just the idea that every single member of a particular group in every circumstance is oppressed or underprivileged compared to the other group. It doesn't, it's not reasonable. You can't look at it in black and white. You can't look at it like that. No, it's, it's, it's definitely, it's a tactic for power. Uh, like I, what uh, Ray Blanchard said on my channel, it's that the activist's job is not to seek the truth. It's to, mm-hmm seek change. And and so you can't demand that they have consistent morality or epistemology unless you read it as they're consistently trying to gain a, the upper edge. That's how it makes sense. Yeah. That's where it's reasonable because that's how you do it. I mean, it's even things where, uh, you know who uh, Veronica Ivey is, formerly Rachel McKinnon? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, she had posted something. I'm going to I know I've just pissed so many people off by referring to her as she, but I, I respect pronouns most of the time just because I try not to be an asshole. But she posted something along the lines of punch a terror for so, something about she was celebrating the idea of being violent towards what she would call a terror. So a radical feminist. And a lot of people are like, you're a fucking asshole. Like you're celebrating violence against a woman. And a lot of people were coming on saying you're transphobic for criticising Veronica Ivey. And it's like, I'm not criticising her because she's trans. I'm criticising her because she's saying it would be a good idea to physically harm a woman that she doesn't agree with. Like, so it's... it's, And, like, the fact that that's even a debate and conversation is insane. Because, like, one thing that you have to give to the gender-critical radical feminists is they're not calling for the physical harm of trans people. 
I've never seen it happen. I've never seen it once. And I know that if it did happen, a lot of gender critical radical feminists would call out their own and they would say, that's not cool. Like, don't call for violence. All of the threats of violence and celebration of, of things like that is coming from trans rights activists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if you read the comments under J.K. Rowling's post, um, but there was people saying that uh, they would dance on her grave. There was people saying that, you know, she deserves to have a brick thrown at her head and things like just mm-hmm. these horrible, horrible things because she said, you can't change your sex. Mm-hmm. It's delusional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I try not to, I, I have to, for my own mental health, I, I try to avoid um, that kind of stuff uh, online. <laughs> it just if, if I'm not blame. in a... If I'm not in a creative state of mind, if I'm not being like I need something to be snarky with, um, and I'm just being like you know like sensitive you know the little sensitive crab boy you know in my you know <laughs> bed late at night, um, like I just I can't look at that stuff because it's like I can't believe the loss of humanity that you're allowing yourself. Um, and and my my overarching critique is to attack consistently and thoroughly the ideology that allows people to act that way. Um, mm-hmm. I, I know that calls for civility can be used to suppress voices. I understand that. But calls for incivility are not the answer to that. Or acts of incivility under you know most circumstances are not going to have the outcome of a civil society. It's not that, you know, like back, going back to Robespierre, you know. It's like mm-hmm. he had some ideas taken from Rousseau, right? Um, yeah. they, they had a bunch of really high ideals. But then once they got to a certain point, they like that human nature kicks in of I am the God and you all bow down before me. Um, it's, and it started off as such a good idea and then became corrupted beyond saving. And I think that's what's happening with a lot of uh, the inclusive narrative. There's nothing wrong with being inclusive. It's good to be accepting and understanding and empathetic of, of people when they're struggling. It's bad to take it too far and say, if you don't let biological men into female prisons, you're hateful and bigoted. I mean, it's just what you were saying about sometimes you just need to step away from how horrible the conversation can get. I was having a conversation on Twitter once about uh, trans women going into female prisons. I don't know if you've ever heard of Karen White. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, Karen White is a trans woman. She was held on remand um, in a female prison, even though She's a biological male. And while she was there, she sexually assaulted multiple women. The worst part was she was put there after having already raped at least two women. So this is a a known predator who is a danger to females who was put in with females. And then when I said Karen White had absolutely no right to be held with women because Karen White is a biological male and should be in a male prison, I got called every name under the sun. I got called a bigot. I got called a transphobe and, and just all these horrible things. And I just had to shut my laptop and fucking step away from it for the week. <laughs> I, I, I thought, I can't believe that there are people out there that think this. And it's interesting that a lot of the people who are saying that do happen to be men, mm. which is why all the feminists are so pissed off because mm. they're trying to say there's women there, they're being raped in prisons, they're being abused in, in locker rooms, then they're being threatened if they complain about it, and then they'll, they'll, 
voice these complaints online and then all the people coming and telling them to shut the fuck up are men. Mm. <laughs> and it's like, oh God, this looks so bad. Mm. You're just sitting there yeah, feeling d- d- a little bit d- d- guilty. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't participate in that behavior, but I'm like, I can't, like, guys, guys, can you not, like, give um, give any fuel to the patriarchy fire? Like, let's, like, let's try to, like, dispel that thing, please. We're trying so hard. <laughs> can I ask you about Brexit, or is that, like, the topic that you don't want, like, that's, that's off limits? Do you know I'm honestly so apathetic about the whole thing? Yeah, like I, okay. I, I don't care. Like whether we we leave, whether well, I'll put it this way: um, I didn't vote, um, and when I found out that it had been decided that we were going to leave, I thought, well, because I support democracy, then now we need to leave. So I do think that they're delaying it and they're they're taking the piss. They're going against what the democratic way of things has said should happen. But in terms of whether I think it would be best to stay or leave, I like I, I don't care. Okay, okay, so. that's good. <laughs> I'm glad that you have a, a apathetic opinion about something. That's well, that's I, a, I that should be an achievement in today's world. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing, you know. When whenever I do talk to someone that holds views that I don't agree with, so long as they're not being a complete asshole about their their opinion, I do always try to understand and listen to where they're coming from. And I think that everybody should try that type of thing. There's no opinion that I'm so... Even religious folk, right? I'm, I'm very, very anti-religious. I don't like it. But, you know, my sister found Jesus conveniently shortly after her husband did. And, you know, I sit and, and I listen to them talk about the Bible and they take their kids to Sunday school and, and shit like that. And I don't berate them. I don't belittle them. I don't make fun of them or anything like that because... I, I don't want to be an asshole, but if they say to me, "Do you believe in God?" I'll say, "Of course not." You know, so just you can have different opinions without the need to attack the person with the other opinions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's um that that ability to be outside systems uh, of belief um, and find your own bearings um, is uh, is not easy. Uh, do do you think that belief could serve you better in in your life, or do you, do you think that you're fine coming to terms with your life on your own terms? I guess without that structure of belief. Yeah, I think um, I'm very very comfortable coming to terms with myself without any outside influence, because that way I know that every decision that I make is one that I made for myself. Whereas you know the idea of being part of a community it tends to come with a particular set of beliefs that many people sometimes feel the need to adopt to fit into the community better. Mm. So, you know, a very insidious example of that would be certain areas of the trans community where they adopt particular beliefs that maybe they didn't previously hold, but they know if they voice opposition, they'll, they'll be heretical. So, you know, like I said, I, I talk to a lot of gender-critical radical feminists. They know that I don't agree with them on everything. So that's fine. We can have a conversation about that. But I would never feel comfortable considering myself a part of the gender-critical radical feminist community because I don't want the beliefs that I don't mm. agree with impacting how I move on and navigate the world because then I wouldn't be being honest with myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I think it, it's very difficult for people. I, I, I identify like as kind of the same kind of uh, be, I adopt that same stance and that same behavior. It's difficult for people like us to find fair representation in the world because we can't even band together with each other or the way that in which we band together isn't as uh, vehement and powerful and unidirectional as, as a community that's formed around some form of orthodoxy. Um, so yeah. it's, it's nimble, but it's, uh, you know, it can get cold out here, you know. Yeah, I think it's especially because we do tend to be very laid back about a lot of things. And you really can't, you know, push a movement forward when you're laid back, when everyone else is so passionately, like, pushing whatever it is. So, like, if you had, for example, you had the right wing, I don't know, screaming about abortion or something like that, and the left wing screaming back at them. So it's like the right people are saying it should it should be illegal, and the left wing are saying it should be legal. And then the people in the middle are like, well, case-by-case case basis, you know, like we'll have a look at certain circumstances and things like that. That's not convincing. That's mm-hmm. like no one's mm-hmm. going to listen to that person. Yeah. So Maybe we yeah. shouldn't celebrate our abortions or put draconian laws over people. What do you guys think about that? <laughs> yeah, Shut it's... up! If you're not with us, you're against us. Like, okay. Exactly. Because <laughs> oh, I remember, like, oh, God. Um, I was talking about, uh, you know, about, like, gay marriage. But, like, I, I'm totally for it in the sense that if, if marriage is legal, everyone should be able to get married. But I also think marriage is kind of stupid. So I remember talking about one time about how, like, marriage is fucking stupid, right? But a, a couple of Christians kind of thought that I was talking about gay marriage. And they were like, yeah, fucking right on. And I was like, no, stop it. And then I started pissing up on the left. And I was like, no, I, I'm for gay marriage. I just think marriage is stupid. And then they started shouting at me. I was like, I can't have these conversations. I'm not passionate enough about politics to be included in these conversations. Yeah, it's the yeah, it's the it's the plight of the uh, misanthrope. Everybody, every category thinks that you're against their category. Like, oh, you're sexist, you're racist. You're like, no, I just, I don't have high faith in humanity. Like, you guys yeah. are all idiots. <laughs> don't be personal about it. Like, you're nowhere near important enough for me to care. <laughs> <laughs> Especially like when it, even for some of the trans issues and de-trans issues, like I really want to be passionate about it. But sometimes mm. the conversation is going on, and like about, for example, transsexuals who have actually went through the process of, of transitioning. I don't care if they come in the bathroom with me. Like if there's a trans woman who's medically transitioned, and she wants to use the female bathroom, I I don't care. Like I really don't care, and there'll be. People pissed off that I'm not more stridently saying they must have the right to use the bathroom. And then there's other people pissed off that I would ever entertain the, the idea that they should come in to that bathroom. But it's like, look, I'm going in to pee and leave. I don't care if they're coming into the bathroom, you know. And that's not a passionate enough opinion to hold when you are talking about this in a public form. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially, people... I mean, even in our conversation, we you spoke about... Rapes in prison. So, so I understand that there's a, there is justification for uh, even just mild mannered trans pro trans people to say don't conflate every trans person with the worst group. I, I think that that is absolutely a good healthy stance. Let's not conflate things. But if you can't even yeah. talk about it, 
then what are you going to talk about? You're going to have to talk about the extreme example because that's the only thing that you're allowed to talk about. You're going to have to like run towards the extreme in order to just keep the conversation, just to have like some sort of conversation, you know, hopefully hoping for nuance to come in there at some point. I think the reason why so many people are, are kind of feeling betrayed is because back when the conversation had started, we were told that there would be no trans women raping women in prison. We were told that there would be no trans women dominating female sports. Well, we do have that. You have the Karen Whites and you have the other people out there who are raping women in prison. You have the, the Rachel McKinnon, whatever she's going by, Veronica Ivey, breaking the record for the 200-metre sprint in the female sport. You had, what was the other one's name? Laurel Hubbard in the Pacific Games winning multiple gold medals. And all the women, the actual biological women, who are coming in second place to these women, trans women who potentially have worked all, all their life really hard to train to get there are looking at that and going, they have an obvious advantage. This isn't fair. We were told this wouldn't happen. And now it is happening. And people are saying, um, can we talk about this? Not because you're transphobic. Mm -hmm. it's, and the way in which the person that you mentioned about that flaunts it in everybody's face, just openly yeah. misogynistic, hateful. Mm -hmm. Bigoted, just like really. How did we? What steps did we go down here, and how do we? How do we retrace some of those steps a bit? Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think when it comes to, uh, oh, that was actually one thing I was going to bring up. Um, you know how the the trans community doesn't have like a leader. There's no leader of the community, but you do occasionally have people that kind of stand out. And I don't know if you would consider. Veronica Ivy to be one of them um, but when it comes to talking about trans people in athletics she's kind of the go-to like people kind of flock to, to say well this is a trans woman in, uh, in sports and even though she has broke records and, and won medals she doesn't win all the time therefore it's proof that she doesn't have an unfair advantage so you've mm -hmm. got particular trans people if they're the right thinking type of trans people so no true scum um, holding up the right opinions they're kind of playing the role as I'm probably going to get into so much trouble for saying this but you know in cults you have the charismatic founder and leader who everyone looks up to and uses as an example and things like that I was thinking about that when I was talking to another detransitioner the other day and we ended up going through all the bullet points that make a cult and nearly every single one of them with the exception of the one founding leader nearly every single one of them applies to certain aspects of the trans community. So we were kind of talking about, you know, should we start referring to it as a cult? It's like, we can't do that. We'll get banned and silenced and called transphobic. It's like, but if it actually meets the criteria, mm -hmm. can we, mm -hmm. can't we do it? Mm -hmm. Again, that's another aspect. I'm sure like if, if you took that list and I applied it to other areas that I'm interested in slowing down the uh, expansion of this way of thinking, like it's, it's another cult with the exception of it's crowdsourced, the leadership is crowdsourced and it's always changing. It's whoever fits the role at that time to forward mm. a, a particular front. And, mm. um, and it usually attracts people of a certain disposition who probably couldn't make it in the world any other way than exploiting that position. But, you know, I'm, I'm kind of being, I don't want to be uh, too mean to people like that, but I see over and over again, mediocre people, <laughs> coming into a very narrow, uh, intense 
form of power through mm. this kind of progressive-ish activism stuff mm. over and over and over again. It's like a it's a mediocre person or, or somebody who who has denied themselves the the pursuit of of excellence um, mm. within the system that's given them. Rather, would just change the system to be accepted as excellent. Mm. I mean, using the, the example of the trans community, what you'll find happens quite a lot is that when when these young people, you know, maybe. I don't know, maybe they're, they're bullied at school, maybe they don't have many friends, maybe they're not particularly close to their family, and then they find this online community that is very willing to very warmly embrace them and accept them and tell them they're beautiful and and really validate them and, and mm. tell them that they're special and all that. And the, the negative aspects will come later. So in, in terms of behavioural control and language control, um, it, it tells you what language you have to use. So you have to use these pronouns, you have to use these terms. It controls your sexuality because it's telling young lesbians that if they're not attracted to trans women, that's problematic. It controls information, it controls who you can be in, in connection with. So don't talk to tran, uh, trans exclusionary people, don't talk to, to the heretics next members, i.e. the detransitioners. It's got a very us versus them mentality. So if you disagree with us, you're transphobic. Therefore, it's us against the world. Um, and you just you run down that checklist. These same things apply to the likes of the fucking the Manson family and the Jonestown people and things like that. Fair enough. There's a very distinctive lack of murder and mass suicide in the trans cult. But all those other little checkpoints that you see when it comes to yeah. controlling behavior, thought information and um, language and sexuality. Mm -hmm. It's all there. It's mm -hmm. really, really creepy when you read into it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you stem, stem that? Or uh... I have no idea. I think it's people are going to join these communities whether or not you know they, they're even aware it's a bad thing because sometimes when you need that validation and you need that company you need to feel not alone they're going to go wherever they're going to receive that comfort and one thing that you do have to give to certain sections of the trans community is as long as you don't break the rules they will have your back you know they they form mm -hmm. support groups and charities and and things like that so if you're terribly gender dysphoric there are certain sections of the trans community that will help you get into gender clinics, that will help you get access to what you believe you need. So there's mm -hmm. there's a lot of benefits for young dysphoric people to be a part of that community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is a good That's... conversation. <laughs> <I know. laughs> oh, God. Need to... <laughs> After this is done, just be sitting there like, oh, God, I need to stop having these conversations. <laughs> <laughs> Going to watch fucking cat videos next. <laughs> just not cats. <laughs> yeah. The musical. <laughs> oh, God, I don't know. I've been too afraid to... I don't like musicals anyway, but the just the backlash <laughs> to it is hilarious. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you have any closing remarks? Um, that, which is always just a... That's a lame question, but... Do you have any... Uh... Um, Addenda. Not really. Just that you know, I'm I'm very happy that you asked to speak to me, and it was lovely talking to you. And yeah, I hope that if this conversation has managed to to help anyone, that's that's grand. I can live with that. <laughs> I again, I I saw. I, do you have more than one video? I saw one video that you posted. 
No, I've, I've just got the the one talking about the gender reformation bill. Oh, so I'll use that example then. If okay. if you're in Scotland, please go and read the gender reformation reform bill, or the whole of Britain actually, because it'll end up affecting you eventually. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it closes the bill. Well, the consultation draft closes on the seventeenth of March. So you have until the seventeenth of March to read and respond to the bill. Hmm. And do that. Yes, please. <laughs> All right, Watson. Well, thank I'm, you for yeah. your time. Yeah. We just say uh, goodbye, and then we can wrap it up off off the re- record. Oh, okay. Bye. <laughs>